So, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. It's good to be with you. And if you're with us at home this morning, I don't blame you. It was hard to get out of my pajamas this morning. I'm not going to lie. And to get into real clothes and brave the Florida winter fierceness. Uh, but uh, we're here. Uh, it's been an unsettling week again, hasn't it? Again. And so, of course, you know, what do you talk about? Uh, that's the thing pastors always question. It goes around all the pastor groups online. You know, is there a way that we need to address things going on in our nation? And honestly, I think the best thing that we can do is to do what we plan to do uh, for months now. And that is to talk about the reality that we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world, that has come into the world and continues to come. And that our hope for justice and peace and for flourishing is found in that kingdom and in that king. And not in any earthly reality. And people that belong to that kingdom, they don't point the finger at others and say, you need to, you need to change. <laughs> they don't yell and scream about all, the, all the, the things that are wrong with everybody and everything else. They know whatever change they want to see in the world, it starts with them. And really, they're too busy with the log in their own eye to worry about specks they see in everybody else. That's the kind of people that the scriptures would form us to be. It's the kind of people that this particular text that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 3 would form us to be. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven that is coming into the world in the person of Jesus Christ as he begins his earthly ministry here. It's funny, I looked uh, back, and uh, this is just the neat thing of pastoring a group of people for a long time. Uh, 11 years ago today, January 10th, 2010, we preached from this same text. So we've been at this for 11 years. You guys haven't changed very much in 11 years, i got to be honest. But neither have I. No, just kidding. But what a joy. What a joy to 11 years later to circle back around uh, to something that we need to hear again. So let's read together from this text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 all the way down to verse 17. We're going to read the whole scene here of Jesus' baptism. Hear God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were all, they were all going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Don't have a really romantic picture. It is not really much to look at, this place where they were. I saw it a few years ago when we were in Israel. It's like a little trickle of a stream. John said, I baptize you with water. Wait, where were we? I lost my place. There, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Ouch. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chafe 
he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, here's my question. What change are you hoping for in 2021? What change are you hoping for this year? We all want 2021 to be different than 2020. Can I get an amen? Right. But that's not what I'm asking. What change in you are you hoping for in 2021? I hope that's the way you're thinking. Because Christians always confront the problems and the difficulties in life by working on themselves first. It's always a matter of me first. And so 2021 will likely not be all that different from 2020. That's the bad news. I mean, 2020 was one for the record books for sure, but 2021 will also be full of hard things. We've already seen that in the first 10 days. And 2022 and 2023 and every year after. And so the reality is is that this year that we're entering into won't be different because of the change of the calendar year. It will be different only to the degree that you and I become different. It will be different because of whatever change might happen in each of us. And so what kind of change are you hoping for in 2021? Historically, the church has set aside this Sunday after Epiphany to commemorate the baptism of Jesus, this scene that we just read. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so because it's in all three, most scholars say it carries some special significance. It is, I think, the perfect text for the beginning of a new year. Because this is the time of the year when we take stock of our lives and set goals for the coming months where we quantify the change that we want to see happen. And you might be here this morning or you might be watching at home because of a New Year's resolution. And if so, we're so glad you're here. You're welcome. You might know, I need change. And so, you know, you've, you've decided to make that a part of the change that you're hoping to see. But this text is all about how to be changed. Christianity is not only true... But because it is true, it works. There's spiritual power, if you submit to it, to make change possible. And that's what we read about here. Now, there are two main figures you'll see here. It's really just these two men who meet, um, probably not for the first time. They're they're relatives, and so they know one another. So you see John and Jesus having this meeting. It's really really, unique in the Bible as far as their being face-to-face with one another. And we just want to look at each of them and say... What, what is the lesson that each of them really represents? What is the spiritual takeaway for us from each of these men as they meet here in the Jordan uh, where John is baptizing the people? And we're going to see first John. We're going to just look at John. And really the lesson of John's life and ministry is that change comes through repentance. It's a call to repentance. But then Jesus is also there too. And, and really the main spiritual lesson that comes through Jesus' life and ministry and what God has sent him into the world to do is even as I'm stretching into repentance for the sake of change, I, the power for change really comes from repenting of my repentance. Now I know that sounds confusing. Hang in there with me and I'll explain what I mean by that as we go along, okay? So what? So I'm going to call you to repent and then I'm going to call you to repent of repenting. Because I think that's really the main lesson of the text. So let's just... Walk through it together, it'll become clearer as we go, I promise. First, let's look at John the Baptist. 
uh, this man, he shows up before Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, and that was because of the unique function in God's plan for saving the world that he held. Matthew, you'll see here, quotes Isaiah chapter 40. It's a very famous passage in the Old Testament. It's quoted many times in the New. He says, describing John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. It is a classic Old Testament prophetic passage about the messenger that the Old Testament expected to come ahead of Messiah to get the people of God ready for his coming by calling them to repentance. And in his message, and even in his persona, because really who he was, the, the camel skin and the locusts and being out in the wilderness, all of it, John was calling for repentance in anticipation of the one coming after him. That word, repentance, is mentioned three times. You'll see it in verse 2, again in verse 9, and for the third time in verse 11. So it is the main theme of the text. And it's a great time of year to talk about repentance. New Year's resolutions are the closest that we ever get to what John is really calling for here. Where we look back on the year that was and classify our regrets and make plans to be and to do differently this time around the sun. It's a good instinct. It's a good spiritual instinct. Martin Luther's 95 Theses famously launched the Protestant Reformation by the recovery of justification by faith. But did you know, do you know what the number one thesis of the 95 is? It doesn't have anything to do with justification or all of those things. The number one, thesis number one of 95 was this, all of life is repentance. You got to get that right before you can get every, anything else right, Luther believed. So repentance isn't just how you become a Christian, it's how you do life as a Christian. Constantly uncovering more and more of your sin and confessing and confessing it and changing. And so J.I. Packer describes, he's a, a Canadian scholar, famous in the 20th century. He just, just defined repentance this way, and I wish that I had got, gotten it to Joe so it could be on the screen behind me because it's, it's very helpful. He says this. This is how he defines it. He says, repentance is turning from as much of you, you excuse me, let me start over turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as our knowledge grows at these points, so does our practice of repentance. Now that's very good. Say it again. <laughs> Molly said, say it again. <laughs> so, turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And he said, as your knowledge on those three points grows, so will your practice of repentance. So the biblical word literally means to change your mind. It's not about, it's not about um, feeling sorry. It's about changing your mind. Because you're learning something new. You're learning something new about your sin, about yourself, about God. And whatever you're learning that's new, that change of mind results in a change of life direction. So it implies a certain humility and teachableness that should be true of all of us. The fool in the Bible is the know-it-all. He's out of touch with reality. And you don't want to be that. Because the truth is, the truth is, reality is, there's always something new to learn. Because we are finite creatures. We are limited in our knowing. And we're also sinful, which means that our perceptions of ourselves, of our sin, of God, of others, are distorted in ways that we might hardly even be aware of. Sin is deceitful, Hebrews 3 says. And so, sanctification, the process of overcoming sin, part of it is it, it, you're, what, what's happening as you're being sanctified is, is it's bringing clarity. And repentance is what you do with the clarity. 
the changes that you make as you get more, a more accurate and thorough sense of your sin. So spiritual progress is to learn more about your sin and to give more of yourself to God as you grow to know him more and more and more, which means as you go along, as you progress in the faith, you're not repenting less, you're actually repenting more. Now this is more than just confession. Look at verse 8. John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the measure of the repentance he's calling us here to is fruit. Actual change that you can see, that others can see, that you can look back and say, oh, I'm not the same person that I used to be. I mean, you know a tree is healthy when you see the fruit. And you know that your repentance is actually starting to happen when it begins to bear fruit in your life. You know, the catechism describes repentance as a three-step process. It says it is acknowledging sin and hating it and forsaking it. And I've found that many people think that a simple acknowledgement of their sin is enough to count for repentance. It is not. You have to hate it. Hate it enough to leave it behind. Not perfectly, of course, at least not at first. And maybe that's the wrong choice of words. You have to hate it enough to start doing demo on it which will probably take the rest of your lives. But only then can you call it repentance. Now, all three of those are really hard to do. In fact, they're impossible in your own strength, but it is the hating uh, part that is particularly hard to come by, at least in my experience. But it's what we have to stretch ourselves into. It is not enough to just acknowledge our sin. We have to be people who begin to hate it. But ultimately, it's something that God has to do in us. Repentance is a gift. It is a grace. And so if you're still uncertain exactly what John might mean, or what the practical application for yourself might be in regards to repentance, we're actually given a very helpful definition in the text. Look there at verse 2. The summary of John's message, he says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, which, by the way, is exactly the message that Jesus will bring in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven at his hand. That is the Christian gospel. But it's linked to Isaiah's words in verse 3. So in verse 2, you see, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So repentance is preparing the way for God's coming, making his path straight. So the text in Isaiah goes on to say, level the uneven ground. If you look there in Isaiah 40, he's saying, bring the high places low and the low places high. Level everything that's uneven. Make the rough places smooth so that when the Lord comes, it's easy for him to come. And the imagery there is a people who are making themselves as accessible to God as possible. They're removing every obstacle they can so they can be as open and as accessible to him when he comes as possible. Um, And the best illustration from my own life that I know to to tell you about this is about a story about going to Uganda. I've been to Uganda three times, I think, and when you go, you fly into Entebbe, uh, and it's about a 45-minute drive from Entebbe to Kampala, which is the capital city. And from there to the town that we worked out of anyway... Uh, It was a really still a long way to go, but the road, well, it's not really that far. It's actually only about 140 miles, so not even from here to St. Augustine, something like that. And whereas here that would take two hours and 45 minutes, because of the roads, it would take five to six hours to make the trek. And what you have to understand is that this time in the journey, you've already started in Orlando and gone to New York City and had a layover there in JFK and then flown to Dubai. And the reality in Dubai is it's an overnight trip, so you have to stay in a hotel for another few hours, get up early in the morning, get on a plane from Dubai, go through Addis Ababa and Ethiopia and down there. And so you're like 40 hours into the trip at that point and just ready to be there. 
And it's the hardest thing. And then there's that long and windy and bumpy clay road. And so it was, you know, I went the second time and it was the part of the trip I was dreading the absolute most. And we hit the outskirts of Kampala on that second trip. And all of a sudden, there was this. We start cruising down this wide, straight, paved and I was like, what in the world? And I, I said to the driver, what, I mean, what is this? This wasn't like this the last time that I was here. Why have they made this nice new road? And his answer was, the queen is coming. This is the queen's highway. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for our God. They wanted the queen to be able to get wherever she needed to. They didn't want her to have any problem going wherever she thought she needed to. They wanted to remove every obstacle and get ready for her visit. And John's saying, that's the kind of people we're to be. That's the kind of work we're to do in our own life. And that's what the word repentance means. And so I don't want to get... I want to be really careful because I want your imagination to be able to explode as you consider just that analogy and what it might mean for your life. But there's some very practical ways that we believe that God intends to meet with his people. We believe it happens in this room as we gather together on Sunday mornings. We believe it happens as we um, are, pursue one another in relationships, in groups like community groups and small groups and whatever. We believe it happens as we meet with him in his word on a daily basis. And so as you just think about those three things in your life, what obstacles are in the way? Are there commitments that keep you away from being here in this, with us on Sunday morning, either here or, or online? Are there, is there busyness that doesn't allow you to build significant relationships with people in the church? Is there a routine that's keeping you from the routine of meeting God and his word on a daily basis? What, what would it mean for you to make straight God's paths, to make a highway for, the God, for, the, for God in the desert? That's the call to repentance. What you have to understand is we are naturally resistant to change. We get stuck in our ways. Amen? We are creatures of habit. Every meeting I go to, I sit in the same seat every time I get in the meeting. Anybody else do that? I mean, it's just so weird. We are creatures of habit. We, we love, we do something, and then we love to do it again and again and again, the same thing. And, and this is not just my opinion. It's what Jesus claimed, as we read this past week in Luke chapter 5, verse 39, in his discussion of the new wine and the old wineskins. I was so surprised by the verse when I read it on Thursday morning. It was like, is, was, has that been in the Bible the whole time? I've never seen that before. Do you ever have that experience? But he, he used new wine as a metaphor for his message and ministry in contrast to the Old Testament system of religious ceremony and law. And he said that the new wine requires new wineskins, new forms, new rituals, new rules. And then the statement in verse 39 came, which I, I had never seen really before. But, or verse 37, I'm sorry, he says, but no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. And I thought, oh, man, we do not like change. We prefer the familiar to the new. We have a preference for the familiar, familiar to the new. But, and this is the thing, if you're going to live as a Christian, you have to break through this default setting because not only do you have to repent in order to become a Christian, but the only way to live as a Christian is to go on repenting for the rest of your life, turning away from that old sinful you and toward the new you that God is making you to be, always leaving behind the familiar and the safe and the known to embrace the new. And so let me just 
offer this suggestion. If you're, if you're wrestling through a New Year's resolution, if you lie, what do I, you know, maybe just throw the New Year's resolutions out and make this your New Year's resolution. This year, I'm going to pursue a lifestyle of repentance. Maybe that would be sufficient. Now, that's John. He's calling us to repentance. But secondly, we see, of course, the second main figure, or maybe we should say the main figure, who's just the second person here, is Jesus Christ. And the lesson that we can derive from him is that we not only need to be repenting, but we also need to be repenting of our repentance. <laughs> and I know that sounds confusing. Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City for a long time in our denomination, he would say it this way. He would say, a religious person repents of her sins, but a Christian repents of both her sins and her righteousness. So let me explain. John's announcement of the kingdom of heaven comes with a call to repentance, verse 2, because that is the only way to enter the kingdom. And the word itself, when you hear it, rings in the ear as an opportunity for something new. So to enter into it, though, you have to be done with the old, or else... I mean, there is an or else feature to this text. I mean, you get that sense as you listen to John, don't you? He uses the language of judgment because the kingdom is not only an opportunity, it's a threat. So you see things like verse 10. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's really strong language. And he's saying Messiah is coming and he's coming to save, yes, but he's also, he's also coming to judge. And he goes on, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, and the chafe he will burn away with unquenchable fire. It's the language of judgment, of kind of this judgment day motif, of the coming of Jesus being kind of a, pre, a, a preview of the ultimate judgment day. But what does it all have to mean to do with us? What does it mean for us? Well, the reality for us is we face, we face the reality of judgment because of our sins. And the call of Christianity is to turn away from your sins and to turn to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. I mean, this was here a baptism, Luke says, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's Luke 3.3. 3. Matthew just says the people came, verse 6, and they were baptized confessing their sins. So this baptism that's happening here is an acknowledgement of these people are acknowledging their sinful state before God their creator and they're turning from their sin in anticipation of the salvation that he would bring. It's the same when we baptize in our church. The baptism is a visible representation of our spiritual state. It's a public acknowledgement that we need to be cleansed by God. But there is no such thing as faith without repentance. They always go together. There is no justification without sanctification. And sanctification, as we've said, is the process of, of repenting more and more, not less and less. But here's the thing. What you have to do is as you grow in sanctification, as you begin to venture into this lifestyle of repentance and faith, you have to be careful that you don't start trusting in your repentance. And start, you know, start being proud of what a good person. Look at me, I'm becoming a great repenter. See, when that happens, then you have to start repenting of your repentance. And John warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the crowd about the danger of religious presumption. It's the strongest part of the text, verse 9. He says, here they come, right? These guys are coming, but, they don't, but they're not coming to be baptized. They're coming just to jeer. And why are they not coming to be baptized? Because they don't think they have sin that needs to be repented of. They don't think there's any need for them to acknowledge their sinfulness to get ready for Messiah. And he says, hey, you, 
Don't presume to say for yourself, we have Abraham as our father, that you have some spiritual pedigree that makes you exempt from all of this. He says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You're nothing special. Don't start thinking, look at what a great person I am. Look at how good I'm becoming. Look at how well I'm repenting. Religion, religion is the enemy of repentance. And so that new wine and the old wineskins thing that I mentioned, it teaches us that we are resistant to change, but more importantly, it teaches us that we are naturally resistant to grace. That the new wine is the grace of the gospel as opposed to the old wine of law-keeping and moral striving. And Jesus' point there in Luke 5, which we read this week, is that religion, listen to this, religion is like an addiction to being good. It's an addiction to being good. And if you live long enough in it, you begin to develop a taste for your own goodness and not grace. So even when you become a Christian... There's a part of your heart that still desires the old thing. There's a part of your heart that doesn't want grace. It wants to go back to how good it feels to be good. You keep defaulting back to that being good. And so many of us, I can tell you, have experienced this. Redeemer is like a moralism recovery group. This church has had a ministry of that over the years. And I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm happy for that. Because it means we're stretching into the gospel. So when I say you have to be repenting of your repentance, repenting of your righteousness, I mean that you have to be continually turning away from the idea that you can be right with God by being good. A lifestyle of repentance is a constant reorientation of your thinking, feeling, and behaving towards God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your righteousness means forsaking the idea that righteousness is something that you do, and then present to God, give to him as a gift, but instead embracing the truth that it is something that God must do for you and then give to you as a gift. We see here Jesus came to be baptized by John. It's kind of a shocking thing. It says there John balked because he understands that there's something wrong about this. He says, no, this is, this is wrong. You don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. That's verse 14. In other words, Jesus, you're not the sinner. He has an intuition there. Look, this is a baptism of repentance for sins, and you're not a sinner. I'm the sinner. So why am I baptizing you instead of you baptizing me? And Jesus said there in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And in that statement, we come to the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came into the world to fulfill righteousness. By dying the death on the cross that we deserve to die as the just punishment for our sins. And by living the righteous life that we owe to God, a record of perfect obedience, tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin, Hebrews says. And this is what we see as Matthew continues. If you, if you follow the story along in chapter 4, Jesus immediately was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. To be victorious. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus went down into the waters of the Jordan and then out into the wilderness for 40 days. It's a retelling of Israel's history because he is the true Israel. And just as Adam was tempted by Satan and lost, so Jesus is now tempted by Satan, but to win. And so Paul, in Romans, calls him the second Adam, who through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the work that Jesus has come to do, 
to fulfill righteousness for us so that he can give it to us as a gift. And so the voice in verse 17 was God's judgment over Jesus' life. Isn't it great? Doesn't something in your heart leap when you hear it? That a voice from heaven comes, the spirit descends, and this voice booms from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Something leaps within me when I read that. And then when I consider that the great news of Christianity is this, that if you repent of your sins and repent of your righteousness and put all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and rest in all that he has accomplished on your behalf, then the same verdict hangs over your life too. God says about you, no matter who you are, no matter what past record of failure you might have, God says of you, this is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. Not because you've earned it, not as a reward for all of your being good. It's all grace. It's not tied to your performance at all. That's why it's gospel. I think I've used this story before, and you may have heard it, but it really, it, it touches me, and so I thought to pull it out again. But if you remember, um, the hero of the 2014 World Series was Madison Bumgarner. He's this kind of big, tall, left, lefty pitcher for the um, San Francisco Giants. And if, you, if you're a baseball buff, you'll remember that in that series of, of seven games, he won game one as the starting pitcher, and then he won game five. And then you might remember he came back in game seven in the bottom of the fifth inning, and he finished the rest of game seven. And so he was the MVP at the end of because, uh, because they won. They ended up winning, and he really, he really carried the whole team on his, on his back. But before he watched, walked out the pitch in the ninth inning, so every kid's dream, right? Bottom of the ninth inning, the World Series, game seven, here comes Madison, Madison Bumgarner, whose arm has got to be about falling off his shoulder because he's pitched already so much in the series. Before he walked out the pitch in the ninth inning of the game, uh, of game seven, he didn't know it yet, but in the top of the inning, his dad had sent him a text. And here's what the text says. Now, this is the most dad text. So for, he's OMG, <laughs> which my teenagers would just like scoff. Anyway, you are, you, are, you are so much more than awesome. I couldn't be more proud. But the thing was is he hadn't won the game yet. So why, why did he send the text before the game was over? And a reporter asked his dad that question. And this is what he said. He said, I knew he wouldn't read the text before the game was over, but I wanted him to know that that was what his daddy thought of him no matter what happened in the ninth inning. <laughs> and when I say, repent of your repentance, I mean what the pastor in Hebrews means when he says, strive to rest. Strive to rest in God's love for you which is already settled before you go out into the ninth inning to pitch at the bottom of the ninth. It's a battle that requires you to be constantly reorienting yourself away from being good religion and toward gospel grace. Forsaking the untruth of Matthew 4.3. I wish you had a Bible so you could see there. Forsaking the truth of what Satan brings at Jesus in chapter 4, verse 3, and embracing the truth of Matthew 3.17. Because in Matthew 4.3, the devil in the temptation in the 40 days in the wilderness there, the devil comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you prove it? Earn the title. Show that you're worthy of being called the beloved. But that's not the way God's love works. I mean, Jesus didn't live in the uncertainty of the devil's question because that is where, that is the seed of all temptation, that, doubting, that doubt of God's love. 
And Jesus didn't live in the uncertainty of Matthew 4, 3. He lived in the reality of Matthew 3, 17. It's why the voice came before he was sent out to the wilderness, because it was the voice. It was the affirmation of the voice that empowered him to go and do battle against evil. He had the love of God in his heart. And because he didn't have the love of God in his heart, he didn't have anything to prove. And that was the spiritual power that he needed to obey. And here's the thing for you and me, all that Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection and ascension back into heaven, it means that you and me, we can live from the reality of Matthew 3, 17 and not the untruth of Matthew 4, 3, 2. But you have to keep repenting. You have to change the way you think. You have to trade out all of your tendencies to work, improve yourself and earn your way into God's favor and instead just begin to rest. See, repenting, the, the, the danger is to think that repenting is just another work that you have to do to be saved. When in reality, repenting is this refusal to work and choosing to rest instead. Then and only then will you begin to experience what John promised. He said, <laughs> verse 11, he said, listen, I'm baptizing you with water. But there is one coming after me and he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. I mean, we, Jesus intends for you and me to be Holy Spirit and fire people. I mean, and think about what those images convey. I mean, supernatural power, passion, right? A destructive force that tears down all of the, the old stuff and allows new life to spring forth. But here's the thing, grace does that. Grace is what does that to a person. And Christianity is grace. And grace, grace makes you gracious. So when you think Holy Spirit and fire, I know you think John the Baptist, right? Eating locusts out in the wilderness, wearing camel skin, yelling and screaming and pointing his fingers at the, at the religious leaders. But Jesus says that the one in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, that he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. So when I say that grace does it and that grace makes you gracious, Gracious, when you think of a person of Holy Spirit and fire, think less of a John the Baptist type person and think more of a Ted Lasso type person. And I'm on a kick, I know, if you haven't seen the show, you can Google it. A person who is disturbingly joyful and kind and gracious and forgiving. That's a person of Holy Spirit and fire. Isaac Watts has written a lot of hymns about, about the gospel, um, but, but I found one this week, and I love the way he puts this back to my original uh, thing of saying we should be people that are focused most on ourself first before we really worry about everybody else, and that's kind of what this hymn conveys. So listen to these words from this hymn. Um, this pardon, he says, this peace, which none can destroy, this treasure of grace, this heavenly joy, the worthless may crave it, it always comes free, the vilest may have it, was given to me. Tis not for good deeds, good tempers, nor frames. From grace it proceeds, and all is the Lamb's. No goodness, no fitness expects he from us. This I can well witness, for none could be worse. Sick sinner, expect no balm but Christ's blood. Thy own works reject the bad and the good. None ever miscarry that on him rely, though filthy as Mary or Jonathan, or Jeff, or whoever, or as I. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father...
as we stretch into this call to repentance this morning. We acknowledge that it is your grace that calls us, that the true resting that we need is not to finally have worked hard enough to arrive at the home we've been longing for, but just to hear the welcoming call, to see uh, the Father whose heart is full of love running over the horizon to meet us on the way, that that is, that is your very heart, that you so long. Uh, we are to run to you, but only because you first run to us because of your great love for us. And so with that vision in mind, would you just begin to melt our hearts, unlock places that we've let, kept, kept locked under, uh, you know, under lock and key, that we might just make ourselves, rip ourselves open and make ourselves accessible to you, to make straight paths for you to come and, and be with us and meet with us and live with us and dwell with us and us with you, because that is, that is the way to joy and happiness and peace and all of the things that our hearts crave. So give us this grace of repentance this morning. Some of us, maybe for the first time, if there are people here who don't, who've never repented for that very first time, would you, by the power of your spirit, work repentance into their hearts? But for the rest of us, some of us who are long into our journey with you, would you refresh us and renew us again with the grace of repentance that we might be a people of Holy Spirit and fire that would set the world on fire, not in a revolution of hate, and tearing down things, but in a revolution of love and peace and reconciliation. For that's what you've called us to. So give us the spirit to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you run to him in faith, know that he is running towards you. Uh, we learned that from the prodigal son's story. I mean, that's what these words mean. So receive this benediction as you're sent now uh, to go in a lifestyle of repentance, but not only repenting, but repenting of repenting and reorienting your life back to his grace over and over again, day after day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.